0: In the course, in the ICU course, Norms of Catholic Teaching, we're going to be talking about the papacy and we're going to be talking about infallibility. Let's talk a little bit about papal, extraordinary magisterium. Last class, just to to refresh your memory, we were talking about magisterium as a complex and diversified reality. That phrase actually comes from a document from the Holy See. The, The magisterium is very complex. You have local and universal. And what we talked about last class was universal, but we realized that there are two kinds of universal teaching. There are Episcopal universal and there's Papal universal teaching. And there's another distinction we need to make and that's ordinary Papal and Episcopal teaching and extraordinary. In last class, we talked about an ecumenical council and being an extraordinary form of Episcopal teaching. Now let's today talk about extraordinary Papal teaching. The Pope teaches every day and there are different levels of solemnity in his teaching Uh, everything from daily homilies to very important documents that he will publish for the whole church apostolic constitutions encyclicals and that, that that kind of thing but there are there have been rare times when the pope has made even more extraordinary kinds of declarations when the pope the catholic church has defined back in the 19th century at the first vatican council that when the pope speaks in his capacity as successor of peter we often talk about the term ex cathedra that means from the chair of peter chair being a symbol of the teaching authority of peter there's no physical special chair that the pope sits in to make an ex cathedra pronouncement it's just a symbolic way of speaking about his um, his role as successor of peter using the fullness of his teaching authority When the the Pope engages the fullness of his teaching authority as successor of Peter, in other words, when he speaks ex cathedra, and if he should define a matter of faith or morals, then that is understood as being an infallible declaration or definition of faith and is not something that can be changed. It's not something that can be dissented from. Now, where does the Catholic Church get the idea that the Pope has the authority to do this? Why? Is there any need for this? Well, it really goes back to Scripture once again, as everything in Catholic doctrine does. It goes back to Matthew uh, 16, verses 17 and following. That great uh, experience of Peter and the apostles as they're hanging around with Jesus, and Jesus asks them the question, who do men say that I am? And various answers arise. Some men say this, some people say that. And Peter boldly gets up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response is a very, very fascinating response. He says, Simon Bargini, you were right. And that was not something that you came up with on your own. That was revealed to you by your heavenly Father. And I say to you that you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the jaws of death shall not prevail against it. And I'd like to just comment on the various things that happened there. First of all, Jesus says that he he was speaking based on a revelation from god not from himself that's a very important point it's a charism it was a gift of the spirit that helped him to locate the truth and articulate and express the truth about who jesus was who he is and and he did that uh, very boldly secondly peter uh, is given the name peter it was at that point that jesus gives him the name Kephas or peter And in Greek, Peter, you know, our English word comes from the Greek word. And the Greek word and the Latin word that are involved here, they mean rock. Okay, so on this rock, on this solid rock, I will build my church. Of course, Jesus elsewhere is called the rock, but here he calls this man rock. And it's a very important thing to understand that that in the past, in, in God's... Um, God's relationship with His people, there are times when God changes the name of a person, and that always is indicative of a special and unique role. Abraham had his name changed from Abram to Abraham. Um, and, and all throughout history, you see various people like Jacob. His name is changed to Israel. Okay, And these kinds of name changes that we see that happen, they're indicative of a special role. In the New Testament, no one has a name change given by Christ except Peter. There's a, it's a, a very important point. There's a uniqueness. Now, the second point is, Jesus uh, says that the, upon this rock I will build my church, and the jaws of, of death shall not prevail against it. He's talking about the permanence of the church, and the permanence of the church, and the survival of the church, despite all that will come against it, is based on its ability to locate the truth, the gospel, the truth about who Christ is. And, and of course, all truth that's connected with that. And Peter is the one who articulates that. He locates it and articulates it. And it's because of the ability to locate the truth that the church will not fail, that the jaws of hell will not prevail against it. That's the whole idea of infallibility as a charism. It's a charism that's given to the whole church. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But Peter receives this for the sake of the church. It has nothing to do with Peter's personal virtue. It's a charism given for the sake of the church that it can locate the truth at all times, despite controversy and confusion. Now, right after this, Jesus predicts his, his death and Peter says, no, Lord, you can't die. And, and the same man he called Rock, who has this charism of truth, Jesus says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, that's an important point that fits in with what a charism is. A charism is not given to someone because they are perfect. And it's no guarantee that a person is personally perfect in their virtue. We know throughout the history of the church we have had saints as popes, but we've also had men that have been very much less than saints, and some that even have been villains. But nonetheless, there's a charism that is given them. There are some people who think that the infallibility of the pope means the Catholics believe the pope is better than everyone else. Uh-uh. Like Peter, it means that he is a weak human being that has a charism that is given for the sake of the church. That's what it means. And it's very important to point out that Peter is not always infallible. He speaks at that moment. He speaks the truth. He speaks the truth that comes from God, and it's a moment of, of, of trying to f- discern who Christ is. There are many times, like a few minutes later when he speaks and it's not infallible. No, God, Jesus, you can't die. There are other many, many times when, Jesus, when he speaks, it's not infallible. Um, so it's important to understand that the Catholic teaching about infallibility is finally articulated you know it's it's presumed in a certain way for many hundreds of years by most people in the church it's defined at the second at the first vatican council uh in 1870 and that definition is very clear that papal infallibility is limited it is limited to when the pope engages explicitly and clearly engages the fullness of his authority and speaks deliberately defining a matter of faith or morals it's not something that follows him wherever he goes. It can't be about something that's not regarding faith and morals. For example, it can't be about disciplinary matters. Disciplinary matters, for example, fast laws, for example, liturgical laws, um, these kinds of things are subject to change over time. They're not part of the deposit of the faith. They can't be something uh, that one teaches about infallibly. Infallibility only covers things that have to do with the deposit of the faith or with revelation, the Word of God, the truth that we need to know for our salvation. So the matter is limited, you know, what what the Pope is speaking about. But also, the Pope speaks about those things regularly, but he does not engage the fullness of his authority and speak in the fullness of that authority, ex cathedra. His ordinary teaching does not include these kinds of things. It's a solemn act. It's a rare act when the pope does this. And it's usually done, uh, typically it's going to be done when there's an important matter to be decided, very important matter. And it's a matter that has to do with the deposit of the faith with revelation, not just discipline. Now, how many times has the pope ever engaged his authority this way? Well, it's not, there's not an exhaustive, infallible list. But most scholars and most people in the church recognize two times for sure that he's done this. And as far as I can tell, it's the only two times that I think all the criteria are really fulfilled. There's no exact formula that's necessary. There's no exact wording that's necessary. But if you read the the two times that everyone agrees on, I think you get an idea of the way a a definition of faith, an infallible definition of faith, is recognized. So I'm going to read to you the two times that a pope has ever done this that are agreed on by just about everybody the first is pope pius the in the um, in the 19th century writes a bull a papal bull that defines the immaculate conception of mary and let me read that bull to you okay and i ask you to listen every one of these words is very important this is from the christian faith number 709 the Christian faith, as you know, is a required text for those taking this course. And it, for those who are not taking it, it's a wonderful collection of dogmatic and doctrinal statements from the history of the Catholic Church, from the very beginning all the way to the most recent papal statements. And they're organized in, by topics. So if you want to read everything that official churches taught about the Eucharist, a universal magisterium, And its statements on the eucharist well you can find that here so it's a wonderful resource okay let's read this definition here i'm going to skip a little bit of the um, uh, rather poetic uh, and devotional beginning and get down to the very uh, important uh, definition here's what pope pius IX says by the authority of our lord jesus christ of the blessed apostles peter and paul and i'll just stop here and say that peter and paul both died in rome And in a certain way, the Pope is understood as the successor of Peter and Paul. So here he's engaging not only the authority of Peter, but also of Paul. So let me go back and read that sentence in the beginning. By the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and our own authority, we declare, pronounce, and define the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. This doctrine is revealed by God, and therefore firmly and constantly to be believed by all the faithful. And then this next paragraph is important. If, therefore, any person shall dare to think which God forbid otherwise than has been defined by us, let them clearly know that they stand condemned by their own judgment, that they have made a shipwreck of their faith and fallen from the unity of the Church. Furthermore, they subject themselves ipso facto to the penalties provided by law. If in speech or writing or in any other exterior way, they shall dare to express their views. Now, that definition is very, very clear. The Pope is engaging the authority of Christ, the apostles of whom he is the successor, his own authority. He is defining, he uses the word define. Now, there's no requirement that these words be used in this way in a definition, but he's setting a precedent here. Um, And so, you know, we're going to see that the next time this happens, which is the only other time it happens, the precedent is followed in the kind of language that's used. So he says he defines it. He he says it's a doctrine. He says very clearly that it is revealed by God, and therefore it's firmly and constantly to be believed by everyone. And then he says, here's the consequence if you don't. You've stepped outside the unity of the church. So it's ultimately clear. It's very clear, and I'm just going to read, the the only other time that that it's it's agreed upon that a pope has engaged the fullness of his authority to define a doctrine is in um, the 1950s, when Pope Pius XII defined another Marian dogma, and that is the Assumption. Now, both these dogmas have been believed by Christians for many, many years, if not from the very beginning. We, we have evidence of belief of the, both these dogmas from, from the time of, of the second century onwards by the Christian people. And it's important to point out that uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, although it doesn't use the term Immaculate Conception, that they believe in the sinlessness of the Blessed Mother. And of course they believe in, they don't call it her assumption, they call it her Dormition, where she falls asleep through death, but her, she is body and soul taken to heaven. So this is, this is not something that the popes are cooking up, it's not a new dogma. They're discerning this as being dogma, even though it's been believed in, in for many, many years. They're just defining it, that it's necessary for Catholics to believe it, that it's revealed by God. So let me just read this uh, definition of Mary's uh, assumption. There's a, a wonderful long prelude that that talks, that really explains the doctrine a little bit. I'm just going to read the very end. For the joy and exultation of the whole her- the church, I, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed Apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own authority, we proclaim, declare, and define as a dogma revealed by God, the Immaculate Mother of God, Mary or Virgin, when the course of her earthly life was ended, was taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven. Wherefore, if anyone, which God forbid, should willfully dare or deny or call into doubt what has been defined by us, let him know that he has certainly abandoned the divine and Catholic faith. Okay, so you see, that's very similar to the first definition. Reading those two definitions gives you an idea on what to look for in discerning an infallible definition of faith by the Pope. And let me just point out again, in 2,000 years, those are the only two times that everyone agrees the Pope is engaged to fullness of his authority. It, it, the reason why papal infallibility is understood as a dogma of the Church and why it's necessary is simply this the church needs to be in a position where it can identify the truth with, with certainty. And an ecumenical council takes years to call and prepare for. And so if the church were only able to determine the fullness of the truth with certainty um, in the occasion of an ecumenical council, it's gonna be left in a place of confusion. So this is why it makes sense to, to Catholics as they reflect on th- this dogma that the infallibility of the papacy of this teaching office is important and why it's necessary, even though it's not used very often. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about infallibility. Just examine the nature of infallibility. If you're looking for official church teaching about infallibility, you can read the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, number 25. That's Lumen Gentium, Vatican II. And there's also an actual document by the pope's cabinet, by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith it's called mysterium ecclesiae it was written in 1973 in response to the famous or infamous hans kung and his book that questions infallibility hans kung is a catholic theologian uh, who well is is no longer really deemed a catholic theologian before for his views but he's a swiss priest who caused quite a stir back um back at that period of time so this was a response to the concerns raised by this scholar who is known internationally about the Church's teaching on infallibility. Uh, also, the Code of Canon Law. You can read about the Church's uh, understanding of infallibility there, Numbers 749 to 754. Okay, first of all, what we saw when we looked at Matthew 16:18 was the, the promise of indefectibility of the Church. Indefectibility means that it's not going to fall, fall apart. It's not going to dissolve. It, now, that promise doesn't mean that in areas of the world the church would not disappear, because it has. All of North Africa was at one time um, Catholic, it was all the way from Egypt, all the way to, to, uh, to Morocco. And that, that whole part of the world was torn from, the Catholic, from Catholic unity through doctrinal dispute. And North Africa was in schism from the universal church based on an, an era of Christology called monophysism. Now, we'll, that's another story. That's for another course. But there was a Christological dispute or heresy that divided North Africa from the rest of the church. Now, what happened was when the Muslim armies swept through in the seventh century, the, the people in North Africa were separated from the rest of the church and they were overrun militarily and ultimately were overrun in their faith and except for egypt of which about 10% is still coptic christian all of north africa became a muslim territory so you know that's a sad story for christianity schism that's one of the horrible things about schism and disunity as we are as we divided from each other it's much easier for segments to be conquered by the enemies of christianity so what we're talking about here is the church itself as a universal entity will not be destroyed says christ and that's based on her ability to be to locate and believe in the truth okay the church is understood as a pillar and bulwark of the truth that is first timothy three fifteen. why because of christ's continued presence in the church because of the assistance of the Holy Spirit. You can read about that assistance of the Spirit that's promised and to help remind the church of the truth and keep it in the truth and guide it into all truth. That's John 14, 16, John 15, 26, John 16, 13. Three times in, in that Last Supper discourse, Jesus talks about the Spirit assisting the church, staying in the truth. So, infallibility is understood as a gift that's given to the whole church an anointing of the Spirit given to the whole church to help keep it in the truth, to help keep it from falling apart based on, uh, you know, uh, loss of, of, of the gospel truth. And infallibility, again, whether it be papal or infallibility of the entire church, it's, it's coextensive with the deposit of the faith, with revelation, with the Word of God. It does not have to do with other things. Remember in Scripture, we talk about inerrancy. Inerrancy and inspiration have to do with sal- truths relative to salvation, not truths relative to geography, science, uh, secular history. So there's no guarantee that the church is not going to be, you know, that members of the church, even the authority of the church, can't be in error about science. Okay, there are biblical fundamentalists who are in error because they, they look at the scriptures as a scientific treatise are in error about science. There are many Catholic theologians that locked up Galileo. And we're error about science, okay? That, well, see, infallibility of the church and infallibility of the scriptures, which we call inerrancy, have nothing to do with secular truth. It has to do with truth relative to salvation, okay? So this charism of infallibility is first and foremost a charism of the entire church. You can read about that um, in 1 John two twenty. There's an anointing that's given to the whole church to keep it in the truth. The Christian faith, 180A. You can read about that. People who are walking in in Christ, who are following the Spirit, living a life of grace, are given what what is called in in theological history in the West, the sensus fidei, or the sense of faith. There's an instinct that people have who are in communion with Christ, living a life of grace. There's an instinct that can discriminate between what is true and what isn't true. There's an attraction to the truth. And a revulsion for what is not true which is contrary to the gospel there's it's kind of a second sense it's kind of an instinct or an intuition that's supernatural we see mention of this in lumen gentium 12 in 35 we see it in the catechism of the Catholic Church number 91 and 93 mysterium Ecclesiae mentions it in, in its uh, paragraph 2 all right and I would say that if you look at the Isaiah 11 and you look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit there, the seven gifts that are described there, when St. Thomas Aquinas describes and explains the gift of knowledge, I think it fits in beautifully with this idea of the sensus fidei. I think they're the same thing. Aquinas says that the Holy Spirit within, when someone's living a life in the Spirit, it, it kind of tips people off as to what is true and what isn't. And you'll find in the history of the church there are many simple people, particularly saints, who are not learned in theology, who when they're put in front of a heretical preacher, They immediately feel uncomfortable and feel, you know, a a sense of danger. Even though they can't explain why what that person says is wrong, they know instinctually that it's wrong. So the gift of knowledge or the census fidei is something that the Church has recognized. We see the beginnings of it in the idea in Scripture very clearly, but it's something that the Church has experienced throughout history. Now here's the danger of this idea of the census fidei of this charism of infallibility as something that everybody participates in to some degree in the church. The problem is that many people think this means that you decide doctrine based on a vote of everybody that's on the rosters in the Catholic parishes throughout the world. And that's wrong, because th- this idea of the census fidei and the gift of knowledge has to do pr- with being in the state of grace, being in, a, in an intimate relationship with God. It's not really something that that you that you get just simply because your name's on a church roster or because you've been baptized the reality of the situation is in this country probably about 10 percent of baptized catholics or even church-going catholics have a lifestyle that is very that's distinctive and different from the national norm when it comes to all the moral failings of t- typically in american society today and i say that based on a poll called religion in america by george gallup that was done some years ago, uh, just, you know, studying church-going Christians, including Catholics, and studying their lifestyle and comparing it to the rest of, of American lifestyle. Same rate of divorce, same rate of cheating on income tax, same rate of all different kinds of moral problems, with 90% of church-going Christians. Only 10% have a distinctive lifestyle that would really mark them out as, as Christian. So I would say, you know, here we're not talking about, we're talking about the census fidei, the sense of faith and it has to do with people who are living a life of faith, and proportionate to the life of faith and life of prayer is going to be a sensitivity to the truth, an ability to discern the truth, okay? So that's a very important point. Not all of our thoughts in this, in, of baptized Catholics and other Christians in this country come from the life of faith. The media, a secular media hostile to Christian truth often has a lot more impact on many people in the way they think than, than their life of faith. So that's an important point. That being said, the the church has always sought to to look for the consensus of the faithful as an indication of true christian teaching we even have a word in latin for this consensus fidelium the consensus fidelium is something that the bishops seek to consult and seek to locate before the definition of the assumption by Pius the 12th he consulted groups of faithful throughout the world is is the assumption of mary something truly that is part of the deposit of the faith? Is it something that is, is truly dogma, you know? He's listening to the hearts of the faithful people around the world and making a judgment, okay? That's part of the role of the magisterium, is to judge the consensus fidelium. What is the true sense of faith? What is the true consensus of the, of the faithful out there? Now, there's a special occurrence of infallibility that has to do with consensus that I want to mention to you, and that is the consensus of the fathers of the church. The Fathers of the Church, uh, is that, that, that name, Father of the Church, is given to great Christian teachers from the year uh, 100 or so to about the year 800. Okay? That's the time frame, and the Fathers are teachers, not just good Christians or missionaries or whatever, but they're teachers. When you find consensus among the great Christian teachers of, one, of, of that time frame, or about 100 to 800, on, a, on an item of faith, that consensus is a witness to the apostolic tradition, and therefore, it's considered infallible. Where do you find that in church teaching? Well, you find it mentioned in a number of different places. Uh, the Council of Trent mentions it. You can read that in the Christian faith, number 215, number 217. Pope Leo XIII, in the 1890s, wrote an encyclical Providentissimus Deus. And he mentions that, uh, no, Christian faith, number 222. Okay? So the consensus patrum is a special uh, expression of the infallibility of the church and, and, and um, uh, that charism. Okay? So these are, these, this is a little bit of an overview on what infallibility really means, and what infallibility is, uh, and, and what its limits are. And in the next class, we're going to talk about dogma, which would be infallibly proposed doctrine or truth. And we'll talk about how do we understand and interpret doctrinal and dogmatic statements. What's our obligation in relationship to them in terms of the level of assent we must give to them as Catholic Christians? We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.